Greetings, SE land. This is Twig. Anthony Twig Wheeler here with another episode. Yes, it is another episode of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. This is number 98. It's on preparing clients for surgery. And I am going to talk you up all kinds of things that I think about when I'm meeting with people who have an upcoming surgery. On the way there, let me do a little housekeeping. This is a labor of love. It might be that it's going to require your love in order to get through this episode. I have been working on it. I've been working on it, and this morning with sunrise, I'm working on it again. And I happen to know that other attempts that I've made at this took it over two and a half hours. Just too long. But I don't know for sure that it can be or even should be done any faster. I'm going to do it again because I had some sound issues with the last attempt, and I'm going to do my very best to get it done and share it with you all at long last and stop rolling around in circles inside myself, putting it together. Nevertheless, this could be a long one. Here's my recommendation. It's topical, meaning that it's on a subject, preparing for surgery. It might not be what you need to listen to this week. And when you do go to listen to this, I'd suggest a cup of tea. I have my tea here, Herba Mate from, from the Southlands, one of my favorites. I've got a sunrise. I've got almost a script because I've said this into the microphone so many times over the last several weeks. And I have my notes. This is a detailed episode on preparing clients for surgery. One perspective, mine. Anthony Twig Wheeler. You can find all the archives for this project at liberationispossible.org backslash reflections. That means you can find a bunch of other thoughts and commentary that I've made for primarily somatic experiencing students and practitioners everywhere and other helping professionals who are out there studying the psychobiological literature, traumatic healing arts studies, all of that good stuff. Here we go talking about preparing clients for surgery. Moving toward that, I'll tell you that the reason that I have any special interest in surgery is because when I was going through the somatic experiencing training back in 2004, I had a partial thyroidectomy at the exact same time that I was studying surgery um, and surgical trauma with the somatic experiencing training. Uh, at that time with Stephen Hoskinson and also by video with Raja Selvman doing the Intermediate 2 training that way. Now, that was timely because I was in my attention with the work and I was involved in this kind of study of one. Is this Does this stuff really work? Does this really matter? I had a lot of my own PTSD kind of stuff that I was working on, as some of you know. So I was really paying attention. How does all this work and does this matter and such? So by then, of course, intermediate, I, I knew that it did. So when I went toward this surgery that I had for a cancer diagnosis that I'd been given, I collected everything that I heard and could imagine about how to go through surgery the best that I could. It was really important to me that I limit my stress response as much as I could to the event and kind of give my body the best chance of healing and incorporation of the surgery and 
going along with what had happened there as I could. So I really paid attention. And I had, I had this ideal situation. I mean, it was just completely ideal. I was understudying and being supported by Stephen Hoskinson, who was my mentor in all of this. And in that way, I got to hear the very, very best advice that I could possibly pick up from the training, from Raj's pieces on surgery trauma, from Steve's pieces on surgery trauma and preparing me for surgery. And I just simply collected everything that he said and that I'd gotten from Peter and just the ideas in general. And actually a year after that surgery, I put most of those ideas down into a little guide, a little primer that was meant to support other SE practitioners in supporting their clients going through surgery. Things to think about as we approach so as to minimize the stress response. And that's been out there. It's on the internet. It's available to you. It's actually on the page for the show notes of this episode. So I would get there by going to the archives list which you could find at liberationispossible.org backslash reflections and look there for episode 98 on preparing clients for surgery and there'll be a way to download this document that I made and I've been revising so maybe the new one will be up there sometime soon. Well, the old one was nothing I was ever super proud of, but it, it was helpful. I've been told that by enough people that I know that it's been helpful. These ideas have certainly been helpful to me, and I've had the opportunity to meet with a lot of people in the 10 years since, talking about surgery with them, preparing them, going to the hospital with them, helping folks with surgeries after the fact, and that's all as a practitioner, and then with friends and family, and then just being back in the hospital setting a few times myself. So I'm going to run you through, dear listener, how I talk about all of these things and think about all these things is actually um, probably the consideration that I have to give. In terms of consideration, I'll give you my opinion about surgery, which may in fact differ from yours, but this is a starting place for me. I consider personally surgery to be a bummer, just a real bummer. The B is probably capitalized Sometimes it's capital U-M-M-E-R, bummer, all the way through. No matter how elective it is or how needed it is, how necessary, how helpful, how on the other side of this it's going to be like, yes, that was the thing that needed to happen and thank goodness that it could happen. No matter how sophisticated it's become, no matter how successful it's become, and in fact, as remarkable as it is, and it's truly remarkable, what we're able to do, and think about this, people in a lot of places in the world, not everywhere, but definitely a lot of places, can get hurt. And in a few minutes later, after getting hurt, they'll be in a hospital where they're being repaired by surgery. You know, and then there's elective surgeries, and then there's surgeries for diseases and illnesses and and birthing and all, I mean, it's just, it's endless, and it's remarkable, and A lot of times, the vast majority of it at this point is successful, and it's still a bummer. It's a huge bummer. I mean, it's such a screwed up industry wrapped up in a tremendous amount of history and torment, just just really just wild, wild history to get it to this point. And even at this point, it's still in 
almost every way, perhaps not for every single person. There could be somebody who's kind of into getting cut open, <laughs> really. There, there could be folks that are just completely stoic or open to it or through and through accepting of the process. And yet, no matter how sophisticated it is for most of us, scary I mean, super scary. I'm way out of the norm. Not the normal thing you want to do, like expose yourself to being cut open by somebody else, to be being put unconscious to where you don't have any control over what's happening and trusting your life over to other people and going through all of the, the fear, the process, the waking up, the recovery afterwards. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, I know we do it. I've done it. I'd do it again if I had to. I've got a lot of friends who've done it. I have awareness that somebody's doing it right now, and it's the very best thing that could happen for them, given the circumstances. And yet, what a neuroceptive twist up, huh? Like everything inside of you is saying, run away, run away, get out of here. Just get the heck out of here. And you going in, signing up for this, or... This having to happen because if you don't sign up for it, it's just the end. Or given all of the things that I've thought about and looked into and everything, this is the desire or the right direction for my life. And now that the options are available for me to do these kind of elective things, I'm going to go do this and, and use the skill that the doctors have put together. Still want to get out of there. I mean, still, who wants to go under the knife? Bummer. Yes, it's a bummer. And something that I personally, coming from that backwoods kind of way, I kind of wish that we didn't have. And I wish that there were other ways that we dealt with things, and I know that that's not going to happen. So I meet, you will meet in our work, and probably in your own personal life, people who are preparing for surgery. So beyond my claim that it's a bummer, it's a very regular and meaningful part of people's lives. And part of why it's a bummer generally is because in some ways it's, at least to me, insufficiently respected as a bummer, as an intrusion, as something that pretty much nobody would want to do if they didn't have to do it. Pretty much nobody would want to go get cut open if they didn't have to. I mean, you'd rather go pick daisies. So here then is a, another one of the special places that SE practitioners get to engage with the world. It's this golden opportunity of cultivating a perspective that respects the impact on the nervous system, respects the integrity of a person's organism as a being, as an animal. And when we get to engage or help somebody who's preparing for surgery, it's, a, this, it's this golden thing that we, we can kind of take these things seriously. You know, we can give it a bit of the weight that I think it deserves. So here then, when I'm engaging with a client, a friend around this, I have this sequence of steps that I go through to kind of do the best that I can in order to help them 
minimize the stress response around this thing that they need or have chosen to do. And that goes, that goes, um, did we already discuss getting some tea together? Yeah, because you're going to need some tea for this. That goes like this. Now, this bummer perspective for me leads to two kinds of focus points that I have when I'm helping people prepare for surgery. One focus point is that I'm trying to help do harm reduction so that whatever arousal, activation, upset is coming as a result of the upcoming surgery, I'm trying to help reduce that and its impact on person's ability to make their own choices, the right choices, the best choices, person's ability to maintain something like, you know, a more settled, not necessarily calm, although that could be a goal, but it's not necessarily going to happen for everybody. So it wouldn't want to be a goal. could just be easier, not as hard, a little bit more, more okay, you know, something that's not as terrible. So any of those to just reduce the harm of the stress response as we go through it. And then secondly, to reinforce or in kind of instill or promote a particular stance, which in a way is a harm reduction kind of thought here, but to go through the surgical process itself in as much of what I kind of think about as a stressless stance as possible. And that comes with the recognition that the event itself, the day of, will be a stressful kind of experience, at least to the body, at least in the neuroceptive sense of getting the signal that says, I should get out of this rather than go into this. I should try to run away, run away. There's this desire when you're going toward a danger like this to run away. And not everybody's going to have it in the same way. Some people could fight with it. Some people could flee with it. Some people could just dissociate and check out from it or just turn off and get taken through it. There is this stream that is the surgical experience. And once you enter into that stream, it just kind of takes you through it. And what I try to help my clients do is to prepare to ride through that stream in the least stressful way for them as possible with, I should say, as much integrity and empowerment to their context and situation as as they're essentially interested in having. Some people really do feel more comfortable not knowing anything about what's going to happen and just trusting the doctors and the medical system. That's a style of response out there. It's not exactly the one that I propose and support in this kind of stressless model that I that I do here. At the same time, if somebody was presenting me that, I would, you know, okay, you know, we'd look into it a little bit and make sure that that is in fact the thing that the thing that should happen that way. And if it were the case, that's their stressless model. However, with a lot of people the task is to help them understand the surgical experience and the various different steps to it and what they can do to help minimize what is naturally going to elicit their stress response or minimize the stress response 
that is elicited in that context. Yeah? So I've got this harm reduction mentality thinking overall through the entire thing, preparation, during, after, how to minimize the harm of this surgery, particularly the nervous system response, family system, disruption for daily life, that kind of thing. And then also in the immediacy of it to be prepared to help ride through the experience with the least amount of upset as possible. To affect those two things, I enter into this kind of sequence that I do. When I hear that somebody has got an upcoming procedure or surgery, my first inclination, likely thing to do, is to establish an interview period, something that kind of gets me permission to investigate the nature of the surgery, the way of it, the details, the strategy that's going on, also get a sense of the reactivity or the concerns or the points of conflict that the client or you know person has. I also look inside of that conversation for a sense of like what available resources and supports are there. Also the desires, what the hopeful outcome is, what the fear of the not having that is. Try to get a, a well-rounded conversation that gives me the opportunity to ask what become, in fact, at times, slightly critical or concerning questions and work my way through these questions with a primary importance to things like trying to appreciate the problem, trying to establish the belief that the surgery is the solution to that problem, trying to establish a true trust for the surgical team, and to make sure that the choice is an empowered one that's familiar with the risks, the benefits, and the costs to it all. With this conversation, you can get a sense, is this a, a complete yes? Does this person really want this surgery? Does this really make sense to them? Is this the thing that they're going to do, that they want to do, that's the right thing to do? They're behind this and they have that solid sense that, okay, I'm signed up for this and this is what I'm gonna do. Whether they want it or not, there's a yes in there that says, I'm going toward this, in which case my work just gets laid out for helping to do this harm reduction and stressless kind of orientation to the process and do whatever I can to help the movement through the surgery be as easy and successful as possible. If in this initial conversation there's a sense of hesitancy or unknown, don't know yet, it feels like the right thing, but I'm scared of it, it feels like the possibility, but, I, but I'm overly hopeful about it, not yet sure, inside of that window, I think that's a perfect place for us to work, right? That's our material. That's, a, that's, our, that's our job is to help people kind of integrate their experience and attend to their impulses and their self-protection and their ability to empower and execute their choices in the world. So helping a person decide that, is this the right thing to do or should it be postponed, waited on or whatever? That's part of this conversation, being able to see, is this a yes? Is there real hesitancy that makes it so that other work needs to happen first in order to establish that this is the right thing? Or there's another option where you can hear sometimes or be told, 
that this is a no. I don't want to do this. This is not the right thing to do, or I'm doing it, but I feel like I'm being pushed along by the medical system or by my doctor making me think that this is the right thing or it has to be done right now, and I haven't really gotten a chance to, you know, you can hear, even when a person is headed toward a surgery, a real sense of no. If there's a no, either felt sense or explicitly stated, it could be very important for you as a practitioner to help provide the support and empowerment necessary to claim that no and to seek a second opinion, put a pause on things, get other things in place before it comes about, even decide legitimately not to do it based on a thoroughgoing interaction with your client about, is this right? Is this wrong? What's the right thing to do here? In short, that conversation around the wise wherefores, what's in it, leads to this discernment. Are we doing this? Are we really up for this? Are we hesitant about this? And we're getting the sense of, are we sure that this needs to happen, that it wants to happen? Have we investigated second opinions and other options? Are we enthusiastic about it or worried about it? All of that tells me as a practitioner what services I can offer, what the direction of of my interventions, my offers, my opportunities with this person might be. Also in that conversation is the sense for me of how this is for them, the client. You know, it's like when we're having the conversation, do things flow easily? Is there excitement? Is is this clearly okay, not a problem? Is there a kind of stoicism to engaging this or a enthusiasm or a I can mentality and perspective? Or is it just very difficult to talk about and frightening and dissociative or passive? What, what's the tone of response? It's going to indicate so much about how all of this is going to go and what kinds of efforts are going to need to take place beforehand to reduce as much harm and to help things kind of move through with as low stress and sense of danger as possible. So a classic guideline in all of this is that as we're approaching a surgery or a medical intervention, even a a birth, anything that has the immediacy of that neuroception of danger to it that says, oh my goodness, this is something that's big on my body. The further out from the event that we are, the more appropriate it is to do you know, what you and I might think of as renegotiation work. Looking at prior events and experiences of the past, traumatic events, negative experiences, Similar experiences, in this case, kind of episodes with doctors, other surgeries, times having gone unconscious, perhaps even drug experiences could be an element of this. It's like to get at associated, overcoupled elements that might increase the arousal of our upcoming event based on associated cues that we still feel and are triggered by when thinking about or coming into contact with signals from past events so that, you know, we can kind of go into this thing as clean as possible without so much influence from the past and arousal just because maybe when we were 10 years old, we had, you know, something that went difficult or was scary and that could affect us 
easily later on. So the further out the upcoming surgery is, the easier it is to advocate for doing renegotiation sessions. The thing is, as we get closer to the event, if what's happening is that we're needing to do renegotiation sessions because past events have triggered us up to be sensitive to the hospital environment and feel increased activation, well, you know, as we so we go toward, get closer to the window of the event, you know, when it's going to happen, its own new danger is going to be triggering that stuff off and the stress response is going to be elicited. Well, that'll make it very hard to do activation and deactivation sessions because we see the new danger coming. It's not like it's in the past, it's in the f- near future. So the closer it is, the harder it is to be clear of it and therefore the harder it is for us as practitioners to help a person truly integrate the sense of settling because the sense of sufficient safety is just harder to get when you know you're going back into the danger. Another element that makes it difficult here is that if we have a lot of worry or unsettledness as we're approaching the surgery and we're trying to do renegotiation sessions that may, you know, essentially because we can see the the sensitivity of the system, We can see that if we do a renegotiation session before, near the surgery, there's no real promise that we'll be able to settle things down before we finally get to the surgery. It might be that we elicit things and inside the window of the experience, the stress response is up just a little bit naturally and it makes it harder for a person to settle. The closer we get to the event, the better it is that we instead turn our attention away from renegotiating past experiences that might elicit more activation. And instead, we move toward kind of settling and stabilizing and quieting, you know, things that help to calm and find quietude, or at least trend toward less attention at the activation, on the activation, so as to minimize the stress response as we go into the event. So then with a longer window approaching a surgery, it's great to do renegotiation work. Get everything just as quiet from the past as possible. As we approach some window that must vary, it can't be like a week out. You know, some people really would need to be working on quieting and calming and not thinking about other bad things that have happened for weeks or months out from the next time that they're going to encounter that environment and really having to work on the overcoupling of just like approaching the hospital and then settling down, going to the doctor, feeling the upset of it and coming home and just working on helping to settle down afterwards. As we approach that window of now it's going to happen, great if people are working on other things than renegotiation, even in session with us, like sitting there on the couch and practicing letting go in the presence of others. Although probably we'll be talking through things that um, have more excitation in them, but that would be a worthy thing to be practicing letting down in the presence of others. Let's say it here, although it'll be said a couple more times. The primary goal of this preparing to enter the experience, that settling, stabilizing kind of stuff, the primary goal of it is to turn the attention toward accepting what's about to happen, of accepting the work, of accepting the drugs, of accepting the surgery, of accepting more or less the immobility state without fear. 
So there is just this sense of orientation of like, yeah, I'm just trying to move toward allowing all of these things to quiet down and just move right through because I've made the decision that this is what's going to happen. We'll go over more of that as we go along here. One more thing in this approaching, you know, there's far enough out, renegotiation work, getting close enough, getting close to it, time to switch from renegotiation and more towards stabilizing and quieting kind of sessions. There is a little thing that can happen that I'll I'll mention here, that some clients come with a surgery date more or less in place and they they have an offer, they have a suggestion or a demand. They say maybe something like, I'm going to get the surgery unless you can fix this before a certain date. So, you know, they have some kind of body pain or complaint. Could be anything, really. Could be muscular or gastrointestinal. Could be lots of different things. But clients do sometimes come and say, okay, well, I heard that somatic experiencing might be able to stop this or fix this, and it's my last try, the last thing I'm going to try before I go have this surgery. And here's the date that I'm going to have the surgery. And so we have three sessions. We have five sessions. We have 10 sessions, 20 sessions, whatever. And that, my friends, that, as you probably can imagine, puts a weird, very difficult dynamic in the room, one that that needs to be addressed. You can't simply take that expectation in and work with it successfully, unless you're just some kind of weird, brilliant master, in which case you're not, you're not listening to this recording. And at the same time, Even if you are that weird, crazy, brilliant master, you'd probably know that this person needs some clarity around the prospect of that working. The prospect of that working is is minimal. I mean, I'm hopeful. I'd be hopeful. I'd, I'd, I'd even say, okay, let's do it. But just to start with, we could see, you and I, dear listener, we could see that the dynamic there is in conflict. It's like, if I have a condition that is driving me to surgery then I have something that is going to require some likely fairly sensitive changes in the nervous system to affect a broader, more sustained change. Like the magic session that just clears this ailment that I'm headed towards surgery for, that just clears it up in one or two magic sessions. It's like, okay, maybe. Certainly in the mythology of our work that exists, but in in the day and and day out of our offices, that's that's pretty unlikely. If that were going to happen, well, you know, a lot of things would be different already. It, that's unlikely to happen. It's probably going to require quite a bit of sensitive redirection of attention and reestablishment of pendulation and changes in autonomic nervous system organization and arousal states and and way of processing activation. And if it's a kind of syndromal gastrointestinal kind of thing, then it's extremely unlikely to be available to change quickly. It will require more time. And more than that, it will require a kind of change in the neuroceptive sense of immediate return of danger, which a surgery, an upcoming surgery, is that signal. There's an upcoming danger. I'm doing this because I need to get through this before the danger comes when I have the surgery. Wow. Okay. So there's a thing and that happens. It doesn't happen all the time. Not at all, but it 
does happen enough that I needed to mention here that this is something to to talk about that it sets up you know kind of dynamic and maybe everybody's game for it um, but maybe this is something to work on something to attend to and sometimes it means that we need to postpone the surgery so that any chance that SE style work might be the thing that helps or we need to probably renegotiate what the SE is best for in approaching the surgery as compared to trying to do the renegotiation work instead doing the stabilization work with the surgery being imminent. So that's a thing. Wanted to get that in there. Once I have a sense if we'll be doing renegotiation work for a while or we'll go toward preparing for the surgery, at some point, we will be preparing for what's the best way to move through this event. When I come to that, I use this document that I created that you're welcome to use as well. And I kind of walk through with people that document and the mindset behind that primer for preparing for surgery. So let me ask, how's your tea doing? Do you need a warm up? This is going to continue in reviewing this primer. There's a few general orientation things, and then there's a list of kind of like things to do, things to think about. On the general orientation side of things, there's first an issue of mindset that I'm trying to get at, and it's primarily to minimize the impact and inherent stress of this thing that we can acknowledge as being inherently dangerous. It's dangerous. It's you're getting cut open, you're getting put under, you're needing to go to the hospital for a surgery because there's a problem. There's something that you need to change. The entire context has this sense of danger around it. It's inherently stressful and it has it has a few peaks, a few places where it gets more intense than everywhere else. There's a lot of time at home sitting around thinking about it and then there is a day, an hour, some period of time that we're actually inside of a surgery. And while that has medication that kind of helps to take away the, the peak of intensity around it, at the same time, it's like the whole thing is just trippy and scary. So I, I like to talk with people around the sense of getting a mindset together, a kind of way of looking at this, that first works to identify the necessity, the reality, the choice of having this surgery. And even if it's a choice and now there's still difficulty in dealing with the response to that choice and what it implies and what's associated to it, but once there's a choice made, we can cultivate this thought process or intention toward what are we going to do in order to help minimize what we see, what we recognize, which we appreciate as an entirely valid response. Run away, run away, run away, run away. Like who wants to go get cut open in that once we make a choice, this is going to happen. This is the thing that needs to happen. We're going to try to minimize the run away, run away and its impact on our body's ability to kind of both integrate the experience as it happens and to heal after the fact. So in this initial, you know, we've already had an initial, initial conversation. 
which got me both permission, can we talk about these things from a nervous system perspective? Okay, now we can. Can I ask you into these kinds of questions? Some of which could almost say, like, are you sure you know what you're doing? But once we get through that, we can get, yes, you know what you're doing, and this is the right choice. Maybe not. We have some work to do there. No, I don't want to do this. We need to postpone this. Stop this. And then there's this kind of movement over toward what work are we going to do now? Are we going to do renegotiation stuff from the past because surgery is way far out? Or are we approaching it? And now we're inside this conversation approaching it about how to do it the best we can to minimize the sense of reactivity to it as much as we can. That is a kind of a cell that I'm making, to be honest, to say this warrants our attention on how to help your body have less influence from the stress response while you go through this inherently stressful experience. Some people, of course, feel as though they don't have any problem with this. And that could even you know, mean that this whole conversation lasts 10 minutes. Oh, well, you might think about this. You might think about that. On the other hand, other people would be right there with you like, yeah, help me. Help me be like as low stress with this as possible. Like, I don't want to feel the fear that I feel. Bummer. Moving down further into the primer, come to what is probably the most important element, in my opinion, which is that we don't want to do these things alone. We want to have somebody with us. We want to have accompaniment. Our body wants us to have accompaniment. Our evolution set us up for wanting support <laughs> and contact and social affiliation, particularly inside of the stress response. All the time, all the time. We're just one heck of a social species. So especially inside of the stress response and the oddity of going off into this foreign environment that is surgery. So in this place, it's terribly important to think about having an appropriate advocate. Now, I talked about preparing the advocate uh, in an earlier episode, we'll say, and we can find that for you. And this is an important thing, to choose somebody who might not even be the first person that comes to mind or the first, like, that's the obvious choice. Because the, the role of the advocate is somebody who doesn't get more triggered by what's happening than is, than is necessary. Like, that they can really ride with this experience and their role in it and all of the impacts of what the surgery means without getting too caught up in their own triggers in response to it. So, you know, the family at member advocate sometimes works really, really super well, can really attend, be patient, buffer the environment, support person at their own pace. That's not always the family advocate. Not always the family advocate has the separation in themselves that makes for a good kind of buffer to the noise and the stimulus and the intensity that may accompany a surgical experience. So, you know, a lot of us on lower procedures, we would try to go to the hospital without anybody. We, we should have somebody. I mean, even, even what, you know, legitimately from what we know from the science and everything, 
as an example, you go to the hospital. I don't think I could find this, but somebody could probably Google this and still find it. But there was this wonderful report 12 years ago. You go to the hospital, they're reading heart rate variability or maybe maybe just classic physiological markers that indicate relative stress response. So you go to the hospital, you're by yourself, you get one kind of statistical response of like, oh yeah, people feel more or less this agitated, this at ease, at least by physiological markers. Now they do the same study. They have people hold hands with somebody that they don't know. And there's a noticeable decrease in the stress response. Now then they do it again and they have you hold the hand of somebody that you do know. We could say you do know, like, and trust, you know, that that person, the advocate in this case. And you see yet another meaningful decrease in the stress response. These things matter. We, sh- we just should not. We should not do these things alone. Even smaller procedures shouldn't be done alone. But a lot of people will, you know, it's like, oh, it's just an ultrasound. I'm just going to go in there by myself and it's no big deal. But of course, as things get more intense and dangerous, we start thinking, oh, I'm going to need somebody to drive me in. I'm going to need somebody there to kind of be attentive to me when I get out. But a lot of people don't think, I need to I need to choose somebody who can attend to me in a way that just kind of softens the environment, plays a certain kind of relay between noise in the environment and my needs so that if I'm going into surgery, I can start that kind of going in process and not be interrupted by things so easily. Or on the way out of anesthesia, being able to take the nice, long, slow tail out of that rather than being constantly jerked awake by nurses and and bright lights and such. If an advocate's there to be able to just soften things a little bit, or once an interruption or disruption's been made to be able to gentle things afterwards, then it's just like a super, super helpful thing. And choosing an advocate, the the person who doesn't need a lot of praise or maybe any praise during the event, and that could go on for a long time afterwards, that just with the pain medications and the lingering effects of anesthesia and recovery and such, it can require that somebody or a group of people that are maintaining the advocate role, they need to not need feedback about how helpful they are and how good their attention is and all of those kinds of things because in this way surgery is this this altered state that we'd really like to give over as much non-orientation and responsibility to things afterwards as possible so that we can just very 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 gently and slowly come out of this altered immobilized state and that's that's not a whole lot of social engagement. That's not a whole lot of gratitude at first. It might be there. It is there, most certainly. And we need to have an advocate that doesn't get frustrated by the lack of recognition too soon. And then, like I say, I talked more about what makes a good advocate and what an advocate can do inside of known to be stressful circumstances like this, like going to a court battle or funeral, other places that advocates might be important. This is this is the central one that I know of. And from an SE practitioner perspective, it's a it's a beautiful role to get to fill because you can you can really bring a lot of knowledge and 
guarding attention to bear without being too overbearing about it. So, you know, you can be a very sophisticated advocate. It's a, it's a good thing to get to do. So once there's this conversation about the advocate, I then move on into a overview of the stress response. This is kind of like true psychoed, physiological education, how the nervous system responds to dangerous events. I don't name out everything, you know, that's a big study, but I do name a few things that are particular to surgery. And the primary one that I'm looking at first, usually, is this notion that, you know, we talk about and in all the trauma literature talks about, certainly the medical science talks about this as well, because they have a line that says, as you go in, so you come out, you know, in that way that like anesthesia mimics freeze immobility so that the body immobilizes. And when we come out of that immobility, we tend to return to the same state, the same uh, kind of tone in the nervous system that was happening before we went into the immobilization it tends to reflect or return upon like waking up out of that. So, you know, we see that in wild animals, of course, when a deer is running from a cougar and the cougar gets upon it and the deer collapses, goes into freeze, and then the cougar maybe decides not to make the kill or is interrupted or something happens that the danger from the cougar changes. And now the cougar leaves, the deer feels the change in the sense of danger, the neuroception changes, oh, I'm no longer in this life-threatening situation and the immobilization-influenced behavior lets go and pow, you see this deer running off again, almost like the running was kind of just paused by the immobilization and as they go in, so they come out is the kind of idea there. And apparently that's true with anesthesia as well. Now, maybe they've, they've kind of like tamped this down with more and more sophisticated drugs and kind of working people through the surgical experience at hospitals. But in medicine, they have that phrase as well, particularly for like triage situations where soldiers would come in wounded and they would be, you know, in a fret. They'd get drugs to knock them out and a mark on their chart and other signals, maybe a ribbon tied around their boot or something, or their toe, I guess, is one option. Some kind of marker to say, this person was in a state, you know, just kind of elevated, activated, sense of high sense of fear and danger, right? Maybe even aggression. They got knocked out. When they wake up, they're likely to feel the same way. They're going to come out in that, you know, hysterical kind of flailing kind of zone and that's difficult to calm down out of. That's very difficult to deactivate out of. It feels threatening to wake up in that high activation state. So that, you know, that's cool if you get to kind of run it off as the deer in the forest. And a lot of times for people and in historical medicine, we'd get knocked out again, you know, or um, restrained from being able to move. And this is one of the primary things that Peter Levine helped us to recognize is the importance of allowing the freedom of those movements to be able to move through. But we also know from Peter's 
really important observations that too much of that will not be able to be integrated by the nervous system and more or less would be taken as a new threat which would cause more activation in the system which could actually put us back up into freeze right so we'd have like this fear-induced immobility where we'd come back into the sense of all that activation and that activation would then escalate again and we would go back up into freeze so the smoother we come out of immobility the easier it is for our organism to integrate that transition and change and to kind of move through what you know from a porgesian perspective we would see as a very natural sequence you know that's actually the jacksonian principle of dissolution that the nervous system going from an immobilized state more influenced by the dorsal vagal system is going to then transition into a dominant state of the sympathetic system temporarily and as that kind of does itself is successful in doing itself it will transition back to the ventral vagal dominance and social engagement parasympathetic re-influenced zone of more or less everything's okay and I don't have to be so reactive now for making that transition the less fear involved in it all the more the system is able to move through that and come back to quietude and ease and the more fear involved in all of that the more likely the system reacts and wants to do something in order to protect itself and if it can't do that thing the more likely than it is to get frustrated and reinforce immobility and other things besides but that's a that's a definitive way for you and I to think about this and and to help our clients to see that whether they feel actively nervous about the entire event or not there is a desire to go into the surgical experience where we're going to be you know more or less immobilized whether we're awake submitting at the dentist or we're asleep and put down by different drugs to anesthetize us we're going to enter into this place where we're waiting for the danger to change and go away and our body is probably with drugs going to be influenced to reinforce this immobilized state and there will be a window of time it could be fairly abrupt or it could be like a slow coming out of that but there will be a transition out of that altered immobilized state back into daily life and it happens as a little bit of a sequence and it doesn't happen immediately i mean it can kind of like show itself dramatically at different stages but it takes time for the entire sequence to move through the less reaction to the changes that are happening in there and the less latent fear that's being expressed and driving extra behavior in there these kinds of things truly help the system to make these transitions much much smoother and uh, yeah much smoother than they would if there's excessive fear or a very very high arousal state before the induction of immobility so there's just this kind of goal to say okay look you know like you've got whatever worry about all of this that you have and different people have different amounts of that 
And we can try to settle that more. But for some people, it's just moving something from I need this and I, I'm just completely terrified of it to making it to where I need this and at least I can get through it. And then other people who are like, you know, I need this and I'm going to go do it and it's no big deal and I don't even think I need to talk about it at all. It's not an issue at all. And for both of those, a very high range of intense reaction to this and very, very low range, everybody has the same goal in the sense that we'd like to move through this immobility phase with essentially as low reaction and worry about it all as we can so that on the other side of it, our bodies will be able to make these transitions in the nervous system process and the kind of return to awakeness and such that it can more or less at its own pace without pressure and without um, extra worry. That's part of this conversation to explain that this is how the nervous system works. This is a part of what surgery does. It re or it kind of like um, it uses a part of the stress response known as freeze immobility and it induces that with the aid of drugs so that your body won't react more to the sense of you going into danger by say getting cut open and while in that state it's while it's a good thing that we can manage that state with anesthesia and such there will still be a natural process that takes place called coming out of the freeze response and we want that process to be kind of like as smooth as it can and it is going to be kind of warbly it is wobbly it is of its own naturally something that causes you know odd body sensations and unusual feeling states and such and some of them can be unpleasant some of them can even feel in themselves like a reflection of something being bad or something being wrong they're definitely not normal and these can have higher amplitude or lower amplitude and we're looking for them to have like the more reasonable that they can be which generally speaking means less amplitude but we don't get to control that we just get to see how much we can do in the direction of helping to minimize the distress that comes along at that stage in this way when we're going into surgery a whole lot of how we're going to feel on the backside is predetermined or heavily influenced by how we go into it at the beginning so in some fundamental way this is very much like what stephen hoskinson would describe as initial conditions and how we get things set up before the surgery is going to have sensible and meaningful impact on what we're going to be able to do with it and how we're going to feel as we're coming out of it and people want to know that i didn't know that it's important to take the time with clients that you know you can get into this conversation if they're up for it and explain some of these things so that they'll have extra reason to invest in the way that they approach the surgery secondarily to that in the kind of psychophysiological education window here there's the conversation about what happens when we wake up out of that immobility and we feel some trembling and shaking or possibly we feel trembling and shaking or other kind of involuntary body expressions like cold and heat and these kinds of things sometimes i do that conversation there usually i think i save that for later 
when we're going through how the surgery happens and when we're going to wake up and what might happen there and what the advocate needs to know about in that window. But here I'll say for you and me on the podcast here, the recording, that fits right in with how well we're going to allow this trembling and shaking to happen. Now, you and I need to remember something, a couple things. Like one is that drugs and opiates maybe in particular, but maybe others in particular too, as far as I'm, I know, but they, they really have a tendency to tweak out body temperature. And the beds inside of the hospital setting are often covered in plastic at some level, which kind of helps to radiate back the warm air from a body, you know, kind of discharging warmth, which it does just all the time. So it makes it so you can feel hot and sweaty in those beds or have pretty wild temperature swings as you're coming through things that have these dysregulating influences like drugs. So I just want to point out that when we talk about waking up out of surgery and see it as a reflection of this quality of discharge and involuntary stuff that we want to champion and support, even in the hospital setting where it may not have been recognized as valuable or valid in the past and often something that people have been kind of sedated to help settle out again if it comes on strong. You and I, dear SE practitioner, we just want to know that it's it's more nuanced than just like discharge good and, you know, everybody who would stop it bad or, or some such. It's, it's just more nuanced than that. Temperature swings can happen simply because of the drugs and the re-regulation of temperature can be this really intense thing after surgery. And that can have, yeah, you could see it as a recalibration or reorganization process that's taking place there. But you might need to give a blanket to somebody who's shivering or to help fan them off if they're too hot. And that's, that's not just like letting it happen. Okay, so I made an, a few moments ago, I made a note about maybe I save the discharge conversation for later in my conversation with clients. But it might be that I added in this psychobiological ed area. Next, I usually move over to a conversation around drugs. This was, this was so good. Stephen Hoskinson, he said to me as I was approaching my surgery back in 2004, he said, your prior positive experiences with drugs can be helpful for you in this. And he was totally right. Because one of the things about going into surgery is accepting the drug experience to kind of take that in and allow that to happen and not feel like it's controlling you or doing something negative to you, but in fact, it's helping you and it's actually a positive thing. I would have approached any drugs before that in surgery in dental care and such, I would have always approached them as negative forces and such. But I'd had positive other drug experiences before that, and Steve did a good job of kind of tapping on that for me. And this kind of sits inside of the general conversation with clients around surgery and drugs, because there's actually a lot in here. Some people are afraid of drugs around surgery because they feel it might trigger a former addiction that they have managed to kind of get clear of, or they're trying to get clear of. 
And so there's often material in here around the overcoupling, around fear of returning to addictive behavior when re-exposed to medications and and pain relief drugs and that kind of thing. So that's a piece that can need to be addressed. Also, there's a bunch of us that the idea of drugs, they're kind of unnatural and not, not something I want to go along with. But it can be very important to point out that in this situation, the drugs can truly help decrease the stress response. You know, if we're able to take in the drugs and help them do what they're trying to do rather than maybe be resistant to the drugs, thus have a tenser response and like a a more tension-filled body experience. And that can actually help the drugs not take as well. So that can require more drugs to do the same effect, which then causes more, you know, lingering side effects or a deeper state than necessary from the drugs and, and all of these kinds of things. So In here is a conversation both for folks who would want to avoid drugs for past experience reasons or for personal and cultural reasons. Then in talking about getting ready for accepting the drugs, there can be good value in practicing letting go exercises, floating meditations, and kind of laying in the middle of the bed at home and giving one's weight over to the bed as much as they can and just kind of doing a felt sense tracking through of allowing as much body contact with the bed as possible and just feeling the sense of letting go into gravity, reinvesting in that process over and over, getting a sense of hmm, practicing letting go. Of course, you, dear practitioner, would know that not everybody could or should or would want to do that. Somebody who could want to do that shouldn't do that. There are lots of reasons not to track that deeply by oneself, particularly with folks that we might be meeting with. But it's it's a thing that people can do, and it's something to explore what the amount of okayness with that is and to practice the sense of letting go. My favorite one in all of this is to remember the first time you learned how to float, just to kind of imagine back while laying supported on the bed, pillow under your head, like the first time you let the water carry you and found out that your body would float. I think that's a a lovely one. But there's, there's hundreds out there. And that's a good opportunity to say, well, you know, part of what we're going to try to do is accept the drug experience. And one thing you could do for that is to practice and play with the sense of letting go. And in here, dear listener, you, you and I can talk briefly about these two other drug things that are related to surgery that we talk about in the SE world. And one of them is the request and the suggestion to request a local anesthetic at the point of incision, like where we're going to have the cut. We sometimes suggest that people ask for getting a local anesthetic right there just a few minutes before the cut happens. And that cut, of course, is going to happen after a person's been given a general anesthetic, in which case most doctors seem to, you know, it's not, let's say it this way, it's not standard procedure to get a general anesthetic, be numbed out, and then get a local anesthetic before the incision. 
It might be much more likely to get a local anesthetic if you're awake. Yeah, because you can feel it. So they, they numb you out, much like Novocaine, going to the dentist. They kind of numb the area before they make the incision so that you don't react so much and feel you know the pain of it when you're awake. But when you're being put under, it's kind of not a common procedure to do that because it's perceived that you're asleep or gone or unconscious. And so you don't feel it. But this is a kind of a thing for us. We, we kind of imagine that in that state, the nervous system is still tracking itself the same. In fact, that's a major part of the point. And so what we ask for is that there, that local anesthetic be used. It's kind of a little difference than what's normally done. And different people, different doctors have different opinions about that. Some of them are just really easy with it clearly, oh, okay, that's an interesting idea. And others are like, well, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that that's necessary. And, you know, so there'll be another conversation coming up here about the mm, alliance building with the medical team. But this is something for you and I that'd be like, okay, that's something we talk about. I think it's a good idea. Makes sense to me. The other one for us to talk about here is that there's this drug that's often used in combination with surgery called Versed that has a kind of a extra special reputation in our world. And there's all this conversation about how we want to help clients avoid using Versed. And that's that's been talked about for for decade. And um, I have to tell you, I don't know nearly enough about it to be able to say anything, <laughs> anything more than this is what I do. I think of it like a super, super heavy um, hypnotic that makes it so that it's hard to remember anything and even hard for the body to track its own sensate memories. The body remembers. It's kind of like even the body doesn't remember with that drug, it seems. So the idea is to ask for a different combination of drugs that's not in the same class of drugs as the benzodiazepine as is the drug Versed, which is kind of a, a market name for a benzodiazepine. Now, the common reference that I hear in the SE world is to ask for propofol as a um, you know substitute. The thing is that when I've done research on propofol before, it's classed as a heavy hypnotic too, which is meant to do the exact same thing, take away your memories of things or not allow you to lay down memory traces. So I don't understand, and that's the reason I laugh when I say, I don't know what to do, because I don't know what to do. I don't know what else is better. That's what I've never heard. This is the better one. I've always heard, yeah, we just uh, frown upon Versed. And so when I went to my surgery, I said, you know, I'd like something other than Versed. And the anesthesiologist said, oh, okay. And I said, yeah, you know, just... Uh, seems like not the right drug for me. And he was like, oh, okay. And he, and he gave me something else. Um, what else did he give me? I don't know. And what else would I have been better off to ask? I don't know. Let's find out. Somebody find out the right one because there's too much confusion for me to, to say that I know. Now, I should say right here that I've had several clients that had Versed and they loved the fact that they had Versed. It was the best thing. As far as they were concerned, that was a miracle drug. It just, they had a little bit of it. They kind of checked out, 
didn't remember anything. They woke up on the other side. I mean, I, I don't know how that goes otherwise. Once you get the drugs, it's just, I guess, you remember less of the entree into it. You don't remember the hallways and all of that kind of thing. Anyway, I, I, I have to say, a number of clients have said that it was a good thing for them. And a number of other clients that I've had in bringing it up, they have said they would prefer it once we talked about it in the limited way that I've just explained it to you. And I just have to tell you, that's, that's the truth. People get to make their own choices. It's nice if we can inform them and um, give them some options, but it's something to be said that we might think and even have good evidence to support that, you know, there are things that we don't recommend people do, and some people will still want to do them. Interesting, huh? There's one more on the drugs, and that is about pain medications after surgery. In the recovery stage, when tissue's healing and there's a lot of pain signal coming from, you know, things that were done, in that window, we're often given pain medications, opiates, very common, you know, to help minimize the feeling of the pain. And while most people will likely just take the drugs as though that's just what you do, some people who might be more likely to be our clients may think or have opinions about whether or not they want those drugs. Again, you know, might not want the exposure because they've had former excessive experience with drugs and don't want to touch them again, or they're not natural or they want to just be able to do this on their own. And I got to tell you, this is the way I think about it. You, you were never on your own going to cut yourself open and take out part of your leg and move it to some other part of your leg. That was never going to happen. You were never going to do that. At this point, you're doing something completely different than what your body is prepared and expecting you to do. Those drugs are simply an extension of this process that is kind of a, a weird new thing. It's a weird new thing to be able to do and that the body is just not designed to do. This is not the time to rely on the body's sense of being able to process pain on its own and expect to get anywhere. In fact, what happens generally is that people, and this, this can happen with anybody who's not attentive to this, it's like rather than taking the pain medication on a regular schedule, we'll refuse the drugs until the pain signal gets high enough that it's kind of like, this is too much. And then we'll take the drugs to knock the signal back down and make it so that we're not in that pain. By waiting for the pain signal to get so high and then using the drugs to get out of the pain signal, which is going to be necessary. It's not like, oh, I've waited this long. I should keep going without the drugs. It, you're going to need the drugs in that situation. And then the drugs are going to pull down the pain signal. And if that becomes the pattern, we can essentially reinforce the pain signal. It's a kind of a way that the nervous system can just get conditioned to going back into pain in order to get this drug signal for relief. And that's actually not a very efficient way to get out of all of this. It's, in fact, kind of a way to make the nervous system addicted to the pain signal and help create chronic pain or lasting pain from the surgery. So better to accept that this is part of the process still and that the drugs are there to help and that there's a schedule offered for the drugs to take them every four hours, every six hours, whatever, 
and the ideal would be to take them and minimize the signal of the pain and then with the doctor's support and kind of, you know, attention and such, to titrate off the drugs so as to decrease them as the body's capacity for handling the relative amount of pain kind of expresses itself as being okay. So it's kind of like not to have it just kind of blown out where you're not feeling the pain at all. Like it's helpful to have the pain there as a signal for like the body to pay attention and all of these kinds of things but not to have it so painful that you have to take the drugs to numb it out because it gets so painful. So there's like a, there's a sweet spot. It's like, yeah, it's, it's healing. In which case at that time, you know, kind of classic SE pendulation exercises can be super, super helpful. And the pain is tolerable and there's relief that can be had not too far away. You know, you can kind of get in the better position and it's not so uncomfortable that is a more effective way to use the drugs with respect rather than kind of resist the drugs out of various different perspectives that then kind of almost increase the need for the drugs and the uh, continued exposure to them. I will say here, dear listener, that Kathy Kane, advanced SE faculty and master of her own work, she has really lovely things to say about medicine schedules and pain signal and all of that. Mm, check her out sometime. After the drug conversation, I usually move over to a conversation about building the surgical team or the relationship with the surgical team. Now this one, this one's kind of fun and it's also perhaps more critical than I would have. It's certainly more critical than I would have given it credit for. There was this moment in my time with Steve Hoskinson when I was approaching my surgery that he said to me, he said, you know, what you're really doing is handing your life over to these people. There's a period of time where they are going to have control of your life. You want to trust them. And, and you and I, we just think about that. It's like, that is entirely what this is about. When a person is going into surgery and they get on that bed and they get into that stream that is just like taking them one room to the next in that gurney bed, going through that hospital surgical experience, the person has no control over what happens next. It's all given over to this environment and the people who are working there, and in particular, the people who are standing above you with all of this skill and training and you know past experience. And right there, they're responsible for whether or not you're going to live or die. And the, the neuroception of that is a, is a pretty intense signal. You know, you, we can think about that as just like, yeah, you want to enter into that with as little fear as possible. You want to really trust that this is the right thing and that these are the right people. And so that inside of all of this conversation, there is a, a thing like, is this the right decision? And are these the right people to do it with? And now that we're in talking about how to prepare to go through it and how to make it be as low stress as possible, aligning with the surgical team and getting the opportunity or making the opportunity and becoming somebody more than just a number, just another person moving through the surgical team's day, you know, it's like, you think about it, they're, they're there in the same place. 
day in and day out, that some of them work incredibly long days, many, many days a week, and all of them do this every, you know, that's like their profession. They're there all the time. And as a person going through surgery, you, maybe you've been in a time or two, but you're there and then you're gone. But these people are there all the time doing the same thing. They kind of know what they're doing. You know, they're, they're professionals at this. Now, of course, there's different ranges and all of this kind of problem with the diversity of care and all of that, all true. But when we're talking about the task at hand here, people are giving surgery and one person, in this case, your client, is going through that process just like a, a next widget coming through this room. They don't want to be another number. They want to be somebody that the client, at the least, can trick themselves, at the least, into thinking that these are the smartest, best, most professional, most prepared, most capable people that they could possibly have on their team for this, or they're damn good enough. You see what I'm saying? The goal here is to trust these people. And one of the ways to trust them is to get to know them a little bit and to have them care a little bit more about you as the person moving through the system so that they give you a little bit more signal when they see you. And that can all be enhanced and engaged in the meeting or meetings that happen with the surgeon, right? So there'll be a meeting with the surgeon that talks about the, the need for it, where it's happening, what time of day the event's going to take place, a general walkthrough of the steps, which sometimes can get more or less elaborate, can even include a little class that you might end up with a nurse and a couple of the people that are going to be going through a surgery soon. There's like an orientation event usually at least one of these, one-on-one with the surgeon. And at that time, it's a good thing for your client to be prepared to try to get something um, maybe unexpected out of that meeting. Rather than that meeting only being about the details of the surgery, that meeting could, and it's kind of in this way recommended, that that meeting includes an attempt to connect with the surgeon And to make the surgeon a little bit more um, kind of interactive on the personal front. Not in the sense of becoming buddy-buddy, but in the sense of trusting this person more as a human. And so, you know, it's like eye contact, chatting them up a little bit. You can actually, and it's recommended to, ask them questions about things like, why do you do this? You know, oh, I got a couple questions for you. Um... Why do you do this? Why do you care? You know, what led you to this? Something that helps them to express some part of probably the truth, which is that, you know, although there's outliers and kind of strange people everywhere, in the main, people that are in the helping professions, they want to be there and they have some underlying sense that they care. And if you give a surgeon a moment to express that, even if it's somehow a prideful and different example or expression than you expected, like they didn't want to save the world, but they just wanted to see how good they could get at it. If you ask into their point of capacity, they'll express some of it and you get to trust them more, you know, because it's like, well, 
He wanted to see how good he could get at it. Well, you know, it's not the altruistic answer I might have expected, but he's probably working on that. He's going to work on that with me. He's trying to get good at this. He's getting good at this. This is good for me. Somebody who's been trying to get good at this is a better surgeon for me than somebody who really, really cared but wasn't trying to get good at it. Like you can work your way into appreciating these people more and having a few questions like that helps to kind of draw that out. Another one here that Steve handed to me, and I just, I couldn't believe how accurate this was. He said, when you're meeting with your surgeon, ask him to see his hands. And so I did, I was meeting with this man and I said, can you, uh, can you humor me here? Can you show me your hands? And of course, this is the thing. It's like these hands are going to be responsible for, you know, you know, the surgery, cutting this open and having a connection with them is a certain kind of orientation to the neuroception that this is not as dangerous as it might be felt. I'm in close contact with this. I'm trying to immobilize without fear. This is a orientation to that, that helps to just say, Hey, look, I know more about this. And my doctor, my surgeon, he was very, very proud of him, his hands. And he's like, you know, steadiest hands in Seattle, <laughs> you know, and he, and he kind of held them out with great pride. And that was what we needed. We needed, I needed some kind of like contact with this man. So for a number of reasons, one was I didn't want to be a number. You don't want to be a number and you don't want your clients to be a number. You want them to get some kind of sense of contact in this conversation with the surgeon. It's a great thing to kind of get the orientation and what they say about why the surgery is happening or how it takes place and to get as many details of that as possible so that we have that orientation to what's going on or is as wanted. And in this conversation, it's nice if an advocate can be there with us in order to help remember things for us and maybe even if necessary, suggest a question or two that we might not be able to remember in the moment. And in this meeting, there's another goal. And the goal is to have some contact that says, I see you, you see me, we're going to do this together. And I'm going to try to trust you as much as possible. And what's going to help that happen is if we can connect a little bit beforehand. Now, personally, I mean this so much that I tell people who need this, that it might be necessary for them to adjust their own behavior to meet with their surgeon. You know, it's not, it's not that every surgeon is super, super socially interested or adept. And it's not that every patient who's seeking surgery is easily in their social engagement nervous system and open to other people's quirks. Consequently, doctors who are a little bit, you know, tense or affrontive or not so present can easily offend people who are more at their edge of readiness to mm, negotiate social engagements. And in that way, you can have a bit of a downward spiral of, you don't get me kind of stuff. He doesn't get me. I have to go through with this surgery, but he doesn't get me, which is probably true, you know, but it doesn't help to have that tension because we want this kind of trust. So, when 
doing this conversation and these investigations with my clients, I usually try to get to where the person says something like, this is the surgeon that we're choosing, that you're choosing, right? And you want to have the best relationship with them as you can. And if that means that you need to work a little bit extra to soften your approach in meeting them or join with them extra or do something in order to improve your relationship a little bit, that might be worth doing. And sometimes it helps to coach clients through more or less how to join with their doctor because their doctor might not be so effective at joining with them. The easiest person for that to happen with is the advocate. The advocate can pull that off because they're, they're not as involved. A couple quick practical suggestions on joining with a doctor like that is one, respecting them for their work. A second is using language that says something like, I will be more comfortable and less frightened if this or that happens, rather than I need this or that to happen. If we can say something like, I will feel more comfortable and less frightened if I get this or that need met, that'll just be more likely for doctors to pick up on oh yeah, I have to do this in order to meet my patient's needs. <laughs> don't know why that is, but little phrases like that seem to help. And then finally, another practical thing is that it might be necessary to consider letting go of requests if they're going to create too much friction between the team or the surgeon or with the anesthesiologist. If you have to forego a lot of things, then it's an indication that you're not with the right team, that right, you don't have the right surgical team. But some requests, like, for example, the local anesthesia, anesthetic, if that creates a lot of friction, it might not be worth pursuing the issue in favor of decreasing the strain in the relationship. So there are times, there are things that, like, just they have to be done. Otherwise, you should definitely be with somebody else. But there are others that it's like, this is what I want, and sometimes it just doesn't really match how it's done there, and it's not worth pursuing so that you can not increase the stress in relationship to the whole thing. Furthermore, it's important to have a kind of a good relationship here because there are several requests that you can come up with here. Good ones, ones that are important that you kind of want to ask for. Like, It'd be great to be as oriented to the space as possible, to get a walkthrough of the halls and the different rooms that you're going to go into, even perhaps the surgical theater. Some people don't want to see that, but others do. And the more, generally speaking, the more orientation we have to threatening and stressful situations and environments, the more familiarity we have, the more our nervous system can be like, oh yeah, I know that, you know, I know this place and nothing bad happened to me last time I was in here. So a walkthrough is a, a good request. It's also a special request. It's like takes more time. It takes more personnel. So it's one of several. It's one that I really recommend that we get and we ask for. And most people I know has, have always gotten it. At the same time, it's one of several. So we want to just like kind of have this nice relationship going before we like lay out all these special requests Another one would be to ask for that local anesthetic, the point of incision. Another one would be the request for an anesthesia that doesn't include Versed or another drug like Versed. People often ask me, how do you get out of that? 
I used to say, well, you just tell them that you had an adverse reaction to it in the past. And now I realize, with the help of my father, who kind of helped me see that it's not a good idea to lie to your doctor about your medicines when they're about to use medicine on you. So now I would just say, you know, I've just been told that it might not be a drug class of drugs that I would do well with or that I would want. And so if there's another option, I'd prefer that. And mostly, from what I understand, Versed is used for the anxiety related to the sense of surgery. So all of these are about decreasing the sense of that anxiety in the first place. It's, maybe it's a little bit of a trade-off with, with the Versed thing. Also in the list of requests is to ask to meet as many of the team members as possible. Ideally beforehand, you know, I, I've had one client at least that made cookies for their team when they went in. I thought that was really smart. And then also, it can feel a little bit goofy, but some of us ask for the surgeon and the surgical team to only talk about positive things while the surgery's happening. So while we're in this open kind of dissociated state with the use of with the help of the drugs and we're in this kind of surgical space, people aren't talking about negative or dangerous things around us. Instead, they're talking about positive, successful things and or they're just right on task talking about exactly what's happening there. But apparently there is side chatter in a lot of surgeries and so there can be a request made, perfectly reasonable the request, that everybody talk about positive, successful things during your surgery. Easier to get to that request if there's already been some joining with the doctor. They've already had the appreciation that like, you really see them as a professional and they're really successful at this and clearly the right person to work with for you. And you only want to make that assessment. You, know, you only want to present that perspective once you've made that assessment and chosen this person. But once you've chosen, okay, this is who I'm going to work with. It's like, wow, get a joined up relationship there. Then make these requests. And even the ones that could be felt as goofy, like everybody talk about positive things while I'm in surgery can be accepted and taken in. And um, given, given the rarity of this relationship, I think it's worth at least having the conversation with clients about how to make sure that when they meet with the surgeon, the conversation really functions in this way of making an alliance and also getting your needs met. One more request is to ask for the gurney bed to be lifted so that a person isn't just laying down as they're being taken through the halls. And this, in the, in the meeting about the surgery, it might be a time to mention that. Not everybody wants that, but it might be something that they would want if they knew about it, and it would be something that won't happen unless you know about it and ask for it. Usually, you'll go into the surgical theater laying down fully on your back, being moved from room to room or down the hall just on your back. And that's very disorienting and all you can see is the ceiling and you don't really know where you're going and can't see and look at people and such like that. Some people have asked for that to be lifted so that they can have more orientation. And um, I think that's a reasonable request. I did that myself and preferred it. At the end of that orientation meeting with the surgeon, I usually recommend that people ask a question. It's kind of open that says something like, do you have any thoughts or suggestions about what makes this go best for people? Or what in your experience has been the most helpful thing for people as they go through this? And she's probably going to say something like, 
oh, you know, just trust us, we've got this covered, or something like that. But the point isn't that the response might be the most profound thing, but that you ask the question so that they get the opportunity to say something that establishes their, I would say, authority. Like they're, they're familiar with this enough to say, this is what matters most. You know, they're going to give you some kind of incomplete or even perhaps trite answer. But the point here is to get the trick out of it that yes, 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 yes. This is somebody that you can ask for the best way to go through this. And yes, they can give you a nonchalant answer because really everything here is going to be just fine. Or some self-trickery like that to say, I've made the decision to do this. This is the person I'm going to do it with. Now I'm going to try and stress less through it as much as I can. Well then, how we doing? Still with me? If you are, then we're, we're in this together. After talking about surgery, the process, and meeting with the surgical team, and trying to invest a little time and attention in getting to know the hospital itself so that there's some orientation to that, and talking about the advocate and such, then there's a bit of a list that I go through. This all goes a little quicker here. About what to do after, like now. Oh gosh, no, it doesn't go quicker. There's still a lot in here. Huh? Huh? I guess, I guess we're in it together. Let's keep going. Ah, oh, preparing clients for surgery. Then there's a bunch of things to do at home. Yeah. There's preparing the advocate, talking about their role and how they can help, how they can best help, that kind of thing. There's the notion that it's Best to try to get as much done before the event as possible. Like literally as much done. The laundry and food in the freezer and billing and taxes and paperwork and any anything that can be done and that there's enough space and possibility and organization to do it. It's really worth doing because one of the primary goals here is that on the backside, we're going to just let this ride out as long as we can. There'll be a need to start moving and coming back into daily life and everything, but it's it's really to take this as a intentional injury. And just like we would hope for anybody who had been through a real injury, there's going to be this desire to just say, hey, look, you got whacked. Let things catch up. Let's go slow. Take more time than you think you want, than you would expect. You didn't even think this was going to happen. In the case of the surgery, it doesn't just happen when it's over. It happens before, during, and after. It goes on for a long time. And ideally, the backside of the event gets as much consideration for its value of going at its own pace as possible. So getting things done beforehand can allow a person's attention to be in a more at ease state afterwards, not having to do more things. Then there's planning for the return home, making sure that there is food lined up or that there's food stored up or that people are going to bring food, you know, that there's like things that make it so it'll be easier to come into the home. If there's going to be issues with being able to access the bathroom and bathing and that kind of thing that those preparations as much as possible are made beforehand 
also then to try to limit obligations and responsibilities for afterwards. You know, it's easy to just be like, oh, this will be its own day or two, and then I'll get back to life in this short order and make all kinds of obligations that when it comes down to it a week or two later, you still don't feel like you can or should be doing. So then you have to cancel them or you go to them and put yourself in more strain than you would otherwise want to do. So it's good to kind of leave a little window, a bigger window probably than expected. Be like, well, I might be able to make that, but I'm going to limit my responsibilities for a while afterwards. And one of the big things at home is a certain kind of work on acknowledging that all of this should take effort. All of this should be a bother. All of this should be some kind of impact. You know, if you didn't have a surgery, you wouldn't be limiting your responsibilities and you wouldn't be preparing a week's worth of food out ahead of time. And maybe you would be well off to do that, but you you probably aren't, you know, and all of a sudden the surgery requires all these extra things to do. And it's good to remember that there's good reason for that. It's a big deal. It matters. It's going to have an impact. I mean, hopefully it's going to have a minimal impact. Hopefully it's going to have a positive impact. It's You're doing this for some kind of reason. At the same time, while it's happening, it's not like it doesn't matter. And it's not like it can just be done because we want it to be finished, or that the behaviors and activities and spending time on the bed practicing floating and figuring out who's going to pick up the kids from daycare beforehand, all of those things matter because the surgery matters and because it really is a dangerous, stressful event that we're trying to move through in the least stressful way possible. So keeping that awareness and even cultivating that awareness, like, oh yeah, okay, this deserves my attention. Okay, I'm, I'm giving it my attention. It helps, matters. And you know, we could hope that that translates into a, a bigger sense of consciousness about things. When people get hurt, it matters. When people get afraid of things, it matters. When bad things happen to people, it matters. They deserve time and safe enough space to kind of integrate all that and negotiate that. In preparing for surgery, we're talking about taking the unique opportunity to prepare to go through that stressful event with enough spaciousness and safety around it as we can make. Also at home is preparing a care package to take on the day of the surgery, to maybe some softer items to soften the the recovery room or the hospital room where you'll spend some time perhaps. Some people end up in a room for a day or more afterwards and be good to have something that says, oh, that's me, not just the hospital environment, but some kind of like, oh, that's that's my world, kind of soften. It's oftentimes a blanket or some pictures or a particular resource of a person's that kind of comes with them. Having a care package might also include little activities, gentle activities for the advocate and the person going through the surgery to do beforehand while in the waiting room so that rather than sitting there just waiting, they can have a couple activities that would be easy to spend some of the time and would bring them into social engagement if that was a desire. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. 
Um, but rather than checking out on the phone and all that kind of business, little care package preparation. Also at home in preparation for the surgeries to spend time practicing floating or meditating or letting go or hanging out in a hot bath, you know, just kind of like sinking down. Maybe uh, a good plug there for massage or body work and maybe particularly cranial sacral kind of tracking, kind of real open attention. Of course, plenty of caveats to say plenty of our clients would need sensitivity around how much floating and openness they do at any one time. Even under the care of a cranial sacral practitioner, that might be a concern. So we want to just kind of, I got to plug that, I did. And then there's doing preparatory sessions with you in the practitioner role. Like you can work out the past kind of stuff, renegotiation if there's enough time, and then closer in can be content-free sessions based around helping stabilize, re-regulate, settle, could do that with stimulus, small stimulus, like the VU sound or something, raise up the activation a little bit, settle, drop down extra on the settling as though, oh, we're really going to emphasize paying attention to the allowance of the extra settling. Or could be on overcoupled elements in regards to, as I come closer to it, I feel more nervous. And so you might do exposure sessions around like imagining the hospital building and tracking the body and taking away the image and sitting and settling down and doing like kind of classic uncoupling of overcoupled like anxiety response kind of stuff. There's other preparatory sessions too, just to keep in mind that as we get closer to the surgery, there's just a general trend toward, okay, let's work on just anything we can do to reinforce things being more settled, just in that direction. Then there's a list for what to do on the day of. One is to make sure that everything's set before the day of so that there's plenty of time for leaving home and arriving. Some of these things happen very early in the morning, unusual times for people. So that might mean that they need to go to bed earlier the night before. But then that can be hard if you're kind of a little stressed and worried about things. So if there's a lot of preparation and it's all been in the right direction, one preparation element might be to go to sleep earlier, a few nights earlier, so that by the night before, there can be a little bit more of ease in going to sleep earlier so as to be able to get up earlier. It's a personal choice. However, it's kind of hard to get up at 4 a.m., if you're nervous and you normally go to bed at 10, but you didn't get to sleep until midnight because of the nervousness and now it's a four hour night sleep, it's just a hard way to go into this. So if it really matters, it might be worth like three or four nights out starting to try to go to bed at eight o'clock, you know. Yes. Also, again, bringing some games or something like that and remembering that hopefully we're going to hold hands on the morning of. We're going to have some kind of contact at not everybody wants that. Not everybody knows how to do that. Not everybody's going to have access to that. But from a stress-less perspective, we are definitely looking for contact that we know, like, and trust. And or more orientation and or protection from the environment while we go further inside. So two of those were social engagement style calming. And one of those is kind of a dissociation, like kind of just going deep inside oneself, but wanting protection from the environment in order to get there. 
So those are just some mornings of there's a moment or a little window of time on the day of that's kind of important to mark out. And that's the transition into the hospital's control. You know, it's like you you cross over through these doors and they now take you into a bit of a stream. You know, it's like they're they're just like leading you one one room to the next and one <laughs> little piece to the next. There'll be paperwork to sign. Oftentimes you'll have to like mark where the surgery's to be so they don't they don't want to make a mistake and have a typo in the in the text that tells them the wrong side. So they give you a marker nowadays to like tell which side or where the thing is that is being worked on. Some of this can all be a little rushed or have the feeling of a lot of environmental noise going on around you because like there'll be other people doing the same thing and there's all these folks that are doing their job, you know, but they're moving you through and it can be, well, you know, it's like, it can just be like this, this river is going fast. So here's something that I just generally say to people. And, and this is a direct quote of something that Stephen Hoskinson said to me, a comment that really changed my life. He said, go at your own pace. And it changed my life just generally. But, but here's a really good example of a place where you can go at your own pace. Because almost certainly all of this hospital staff, all these people, they've all met somebody who is going to go faster than you and all met somebody who's going to go slower than you. They've all been trained to work with people across the whole range of how the pace goes. And they might have a pace that they're setting, but you really get to go at your own pace here. This is kind of like take your own time. It doesn't mean that you need to linger any longer than necessary, but it does mean that this is a good place to explore that stress-less element of it. It's just like, I'm just kind of walking through this, just moving through this more or less at my own pace. They're guiding me through this. They're going to be patient if I'm going slower than they expect. But at the same time, like I don't need to get up my stress response any extra because they're all doing their job. In other words, this is a good time to go into your own little world where other people are kind of like making the stream of what happens happen. And you're just kind of like going along inside of it. In that way, it can be good to mark the passage over from my control into their control. Like when you go through those doors, maybe when you go into the hospital, sometime it can be good to kind of just make a little ritual or a little commentary or even just a, a little declaration. Okay, from here, I'm going along and I'm just going to ride through this. Whereas before, I was, of course, kind of getting myself here and getting dressed and whatever else that needed to be done. From here on, when I pass through these doors and I start kind of like getting taken downstream, I'm just going to do my best to roll through this and ride along with what what comes next. On the far other side of this, I'll get to come back and kind of take over my world again. Just at the start in here, when they take you in and you get moved on to like a gurney bed, that might be the time to, re to remind them that you want a like seat up rather than laying straight on your back. That's personal preference and may not be the easiest thing to ask for once you start ending up in that state of everybody else is controlling my life. That that it gets pr more and more true as you go further down this sequence. So if that's a, a request, it, this is probably the time to make it, right, as you enter into that. But again, just to reinforce it, not in, in any kind of way, like I need this more than 
than anything, nothing, you don't need anything anymore. At this point, it's all about letting go. They're going to take care of you. That's what they do every day. The rest of it in this zone, in my kind of thought and recommendation here is just, it's all about chilling out. It's all about passing time. Like you can either do a social engagement style where you talk to people who are coming by and you engage with people, or you can do your own kind of going deep inside quietude kind of place. Go to your happiest place, go to your quietest place. Like um, people are going to interrupt that that's going to happen in inside of the surgical stream of things. You get interrupted a whole bunch of times and it's just like to ride with that. Just take your time responding. Doesn't have to be quick in most cases, you know, in this kind of like, oh, we're, this is a planned kind of thing. It's like, just ride right along at your own pace. Let them interrupt and try not to get triggered by things in the sense of like, who cares? One moment to the next, something else is going to happen in here. No doubt about it. They're going to move you right through no hurry in your own sense of things. In going into surgery, there are people who prefer, think they prefer to have like arranged music or headphones of like a meditation or some kind of thing to be able to listen to while they're going into surgery. This is a fun one that I get to lean on Stephen Hoskinson again because he, he said a long time ago, he said, how would you know what you want to listen to in one state with your, when you're in a different state? I heard that when I was going into my surgery and I was like, you know, that's entirely true. Like, how do I know what I want to listen to when these people are cutting me open and I'm going to be in this altered state? Like, how would I know what I want to listen to in that moment? You know, so this is maybe a point of personal preference and such, but perhaps one pattern here is just to be as integrated through the experience, which is inclusive of the fact that the doctors are talking around us and everything as we can and try to integrate the entire experience as we can. That said, maybe somebody knows that, no, no, I definitely want to listen to like this meditation CD or this music or something, in which case that would be something that is done out there. Okay, then of course, eventually there'll be a point where the anesthesiologist is going to say something like, okay, well, if you have a favorite place you like to go to, or you have a like a calm memory that you like a lot, maybe this is a good time for you to think about that or remember that. They often induce something like that. And a few minutes later, you feel this takeaway of the drugs where it's just like, okay, now you're going to be anesthetized. Here's the thing. Let it happen. Like that's what we're trying to get to, to prepare our clients for when that moment is coming, approaching, and when that comes itself, that it's just like, yeah, I've done everything that I could do to make it so that this is going to be as successful as possible. I chose the right team. I got to know them. I made sure I needed this. I did all the discernment necessary to know that this is the right thing for my life and for me to do. I'm better off with this than without it. These people are all professionals around me that are inside of, tra of a tradition that's really learned a lot about how to do this. We're going for this. This is going to happen now. And I am just going to ride this out. And so when we approach that drug experience, it's just a nice reminder to say, I've done everything I could to make this go as safely as I can. I'm going to trust the process now as much as I can. 
and I'm just going to see what happens next. And then, dear listener, there's what happens on the other side. So we talk about that. There's, um, there's a kind of mindset here. There's nothing that matters. There's nothing that matters. There's nothing that needs to happen. You just went through a surgery. You're waking up on the other side. You are not responsible for anything. There's a bunch of doctors and nurses that are by degree watching with more and then less intensity as you prove out that everything's going okay. You know, so like at first you get moved to this, I think they often call it the recovery room, and there may be other beds in there and nurses are coming and going and checking on everybody all the time. And as you get proven out that you're stable enough to leave there, they often do a little exit interview. The doctor might come in and ask you a question or two and tell you everything went well or that kind of thing. And then they move you off into another space, maybe more likely to be your own room, but maybe with other folks there too. But it would be a longer term stay there and you're more stable. And that's often the place that the advocate can first come in and engage with you and start to kind of do their task of not intruding on the environment and not protecting you at all costs, but softening the interaction between you and the environment. But here's the thing. When you come out, the doctors and nurses are watching after you. And then your advocate's watching after you uh, with the nurses not far away. And in all of that, there is nothing that the patient can do on their behalf. There's nothing at all the patient can do on their behalf. I mean, if you're if you're thirsty, you might be able to signal for that you're thirsty. And if they can, they can give you water. That's, that's kind of like the most you can do on your behalf. You can't be concerned about what happened and how it went. And you, you can't make any difference for how it went. You can't get up and get out of the hospital any faster. You can't make the stitches heal any faster. You can't even get up and go to the bathroom half the time for, you know, depending on the situation, even, even if, even if your body could move, your body can't move because you're waking up out of these drugs. So you can't even get to the bathroom. So they have a a special device for that in a lot of cases called a bedpan. And it has nothing to do with the fact that you're not able to walk. It hasn't like in the physical sense, it's that you can't physically walk because of the drugs. You're helpless and it's good. It's a good idea to stay helpless, to stay okay with being helpless, to not do anything, to not care about anything, to not have anything matter. Other competent people are watching out after you. And this is a time to continue that sense of, I've done everything I could to set this up as well as I can, and I'm going to go with it from there until such a time that my interaction with it again matters and influences things and on the back side in the recovery waking up process which can go from you know short window to hours to days there's nothing you can do nothing you should try to do and it's good to be prepared to just ride that out with patience now when the advocate does arrive i think that's a good time to double down on the okay now i really don't have to do anything i mean You didn't have to do anything at all before because the doctors and nurses were watching out after you. But now that you've got your own people nearby, it's even more time to say, okay, now I've got somebody else watching and remembering what's happening here. I'm just going to settle out and wait until my body of its own starts to 
decrease the signal that says I'm out of it and increase the signal that I'm coming back and not to push that in any unnecessary way. There's nothing that one could do in this state that would make their situation any better. The better of what's happening here is all established by what was set up beforehand. And so the advocates there trying to soften the environment, trying to keep the lights low, trying to keep the noises, you know, from not being quite so abrupt and stroking or gentle massage. Also guarding over and watching after the body and the kind of the patient, if their body starts to express this trembling and shaking that we talk about in SE a lot and the kind of discharge from the surgery or the transition out of immobility back into other other phases of the nervous system. And the thing here, of course, is that it can be a little bit delicate, right? Because one, the advocate might not have so much experience with that. Two, the trembling and shaking might be very easy and light, in which case it really is something to just allow to happen. But it could also be stronger and it could offend or cause problems for the sutures if it got too too strong. The doctors and nurses, if they were to know about it, they might want it to be subdued, in which case it might actually be better if it is subdued. And having a kind of a cultural bias from an SE perspective might say, oh, no, we just want to let that happen. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we want to let it happen if it's on the low scale and easily integrated and allowed to move through which probably most of the time it is, and more exotic or things with, with higher amplitude and, and more wackiness, you know, it's, it's not something to, to grunt and bear. It's really not. And, um, and so that's just like a, a kind of thing. Like you might feel some trembling and shaking and heat flushes or cold chills when, when you're waking up. And if it's light enough and reasonable enough and it seems to be moving through, it's nice if we can just allow that to happen and recognize that it's part of what our bodies do when they're kind of moving through these nervous system states. At the same time, if it ever gets too uncomfortable or feel too awkward or too threatening or anything, make sure you get some assistance from the nurses and help kind of like quiet things down so that it doesn't become untenable. Well, of course, at some point there's going to be going home and the place I try to like reinforce here is that we want to give that more time than, than you think you'll need. The going home, the recovery at home, the time before going back to work and responsibilities and picking up the kids and picking up the newspaper. Who knows what it's going to be. The thing is that almost everybody is going to want to return to normalcy faster than is actually wise or they're better off for. It's like you don't want to do this in the first place. You'd rather be picking those daisies. And so here you have to linger, not being able to move, linger, being dependent on other people's help, linger, being at a quieter pace in your day. Ooh, one has to cultivate some patience. And so before it happens, back way back in the conversation beforehand with this whole episode's all about, these initial conversations about how to go through this best, is to say, you know, afterwards you'll naturally want to get back to things faster than your body really should. And before your spirit should, go ahead and prepare and plan to be able to linger there and even prepare and plan for the fact that it might not be easy to do. 
So have some interesting things to occupy your time and or the right kind of support set up and or just know that you have to suffer through this period of waiting for your body to catch up with what's happened. So the key in here really is rest, rest, rest. Then there'll be, you know, doctor follow-ups and how to go and taking out the stitches and, you know, thanking the advocates for all their kind attention as you come back to yourself. And then, you know, kind of like go on and have a great life. Have a great life. That That's like preparing yourself to go through this stressful thing that signals danger at the exact time that you want your body to be working as much as it can on its restorative process rather than on its stress response process. So you're doing everything you can, that's the notion here, to prepare yourself to go through this danger, minimize the stress response, and then reclaim the healing response and the restful restoration response on the backside. You know, depending on who you are, drink some bone broth. Now, in the context of sessions afterwards, dear listener, of course, there's uh, there's like a little sequence of things that one can do. I I follow almost the same pattern as I talked about in episode 95 and after the accident, another long one, but it, it lays out. It's like there's the implicit, ready-to-move, already-moving kind of stuff afterwards. So an initial session might be looking for like what's already there, what's already present, what's already expressing itself, what's ready to do something. And once that first level of action and activation or noise or what's obvious starts to settle out, then probably start looking for deeper expressions of like lingering pain or lingering dissociation and freeze, like places that are numb or places that or throbbing or, you know, the throbbing one might be what's implicit and right at the surface, but more like, oh, you know, it's like this area just doesn't feel right, you know, so we might be doing some pendulation kind of things to help organize the attention around feeling where it's uncomfortable, feeling where it's like that, but not uncomfortable. So maybe the opposite side of the body and then back to where it's uncomfortable, back and forth where it's not like that until we start to see some kind of felt sense shift with that feeling of the pain and and then tracking to see what happens next. That would be like kind of standard stuff, but it would follow a kind of sequence, right? Like the stuff that's right at the surface. Okay, the things that are a little bit harder to get to. And then two, three sessions down, I generally look for doing a session that moves through the sequence, like a time series sequence of the morning that you woke up for the surgery and what happened then, and then walking through the entire process, anticipating that that session likely has some time spent in freeze and mobility inside the session room, which to do that, I would probably wanted have already done work previous that was going to set that up for success. It's a whole nother thing preparing for successful freezy sessions and all that stuff, which is talked about early in the podcast series. And here, you know, it'd be a great place to just run through the entire story of what happened two, three sessions in. Now, one question that often comes up is, how soon after the surgery should I come in for a session? And what I say is, as soon as it's not its own new strain, its own new stress. So it's like, if, um, you know, you got somebody who's helping out, but it's a whole nother request for them to pick you up and take you to taking a session and just to bring up the extra stress of asking a person to help that much more 
would kind of like be its own new tension, somewhere in there it's strong enough to say, it's not worth it. Like, let's meet on the phone if necessary or on, you know, some other means and or let's just wait. You're still in the writing it out process until the immediacy of this stress becomes less and then you can add on the new challenge of coming in for a session or do a house call if that's an option too because the truth is pretty much as soon as possible. It's like if I could be with somebody who was SE trained right when I'm waking up, I would want to be. Finally, in an ideal sense, I'd hope to be able to meet with the person two or three months, maybe six months later to go through the entire thing again and look for that left undone, you know, to just kind of like really at a distance clean up the entire experience because this is a really well-defined, well-organized kind of thing. Going through a surgery is a, quote, traumatic event or has that potential that is really well organized that makes it so that you can you can attend to it better than other disorganized and unplanned kind of things not that every surgery is planned but there's enough of a sequence here particularly if we're talking about preparing for it that just gives a real credit to working through the story again and um you know kind of putting this to rest as it were I did, I did one of those follow-up meetings with Steve Hoskinson, and I, like I say, I had this partial thyroidectomy that left me needing thyroid medication every day, which was not easy for me to accept. And it was in that follow-up session that I was able to kind of like take in all of that and settle into the fact that that's, that's a reality of my life now, that I'll be taking that medication, even though once we did the surgery, it turned out that I hadn't had cancer, that it was a misdiagnosis. So that session afterwards just helped to kind of like pull all of these things together with enough distance and enough clarity that, you know, it's just become a part of the story of my life. And that, my friends, is pretty much the entirety of my thinking process around preparing people for surgery. Maybe I have other nuances. Certainly other nuances about how to talk to specific people who are feeling this or that way around surgery or what to do with the preparatory sessions that are more about renegotiation from past events. And inside the window of like, oh, you know, I, I, I meet with somebody one time in their preparation for surgery. This episode has been my explanation about how and why I say the things that I do. What hasn't been talked about in this episode, of course, is what to do about renegotiating surgical trauma. And, you know, that's, that's just way out of the purview of a podcast. That, in my experience, is best addressed by Peter Levine's Eye of the Needle training, but also just the SE training in general. And there's so many other things out there that kind of, the, well, the touch work would be a big one for that. On the podcast, there's a few episodes that are somewhat helpful in thinking about those things like episode 72 on letting down in the presence of others because that's a big part of it being able to kind of take in the the renegotiation element of the drug experience particularly if it went bad the surgery went bad just being able to ride it so there's a letting down in the presence of others that's episode 72 then getting through freezy sessions 
episode three, way back at the beginning. That's a big one because as the practitioner, when you're doing renegotiation sessions, you're probably going to have to ride some freeze in the room and it might get pretty heavy. So you have to be able to kind of keep yourself still in the session. And then um, the T-series review on that was done again in episode 95 after the accident. And that that's a, a big part of renegotiation renegotiating surgery trauma. But as a, as a theme, I'm not talking about that here, that is all to be found elsewhere for you. Here was all about what to think about, how to think with people to have less stress and reduce the harm of something that is understandably, for many people, if not in some physiological sense for everybody, perceived to be a dangerous event, and strangely enough, one that in the modern age we have the opportunity and um, oftentimes almost the obligation <laughs> to uh, allow ourselves to submit to that. And with it, I am going to find the close to, yes, another lengthy and full of love episode of Twig's Essie Reflections. This is episode 98. I hope that this will help. Okay. I hope you're taking real good care out there. I wish you the very, very best. Bye-bye now. Well, for the enthusiastic listener that got all the way to the end here, here's a tracking twig moment. Episode 99 and 100. Whoa, I don't know. I guess they're coming soon. I thought I would have had those done in September. But, you know, this episode, as an example, I started it at 6 a.m. this morning, and it's 12 now. And I'll have just as much time this afternoon of editing it. So that's, that's a funny thing, because I've actually already done this same episode three other times in the last three weeks. And I, I just, like, each time it didn't work. So, I don't know. Episode 99 and 100, they could be, they could be like that. Because all of the others, 95 took weeks. Like, many of these in the last 10 episodes have, have just taken a lot. So, what could I say? Look back? Check back? Um, I guess I could say be on my newsletter and we'll assume that I'll let everybody know. I'll try to get them done in October. I've got a trip to Australia to assist at a beginning one with Joshua Silva in SE Australia in October. That's going to be good. I don't know, guys. I'm still in it, though. Don't you see that? I, you must see that. You must. Of course you do. Yes. Ah, thank you. Thanks for sticking in there with me. We're almost done. Episode 98 is Later Gator. That's that. Hey, let me tell you a little piece of a story though. Back in 2004 when I was going through that little surgery that I mentioned, a couple of things happened that really mattered to me. One is that I was being coached through it by Stephen Hoskinson, so he kind of helped prepare me. Second was that just the day before the surgery, I got a completely unexpected voicemail message from Peter Levine. Now, what you got to know is that, like, I had never met him, 
And even after I met him, I never had a relationship with him that would suggest that he should call me. So he was almost surely put up to it. At the same time, that didn't matter. What mattered was what he said. What he said was that he thought I had all the resources I needed to go through the surgery with as much success as possible or something super close to that. But I had all the resources I needed to go through this and it would be successful because of that. And like it mattered, that call mattered. I thought about that comment and I was like, yeah, I've, I've done what I need to do here to make it go as good as it can. It's going to be okay. And um, both that it was Peter Levine and that it was that comment really helped me enter the thing the next day, as did Steve's support. And my advocate, dear friend of mine, was there right when I woke up, super mattered. And then our, our lovely Joshua Silve, back in the day, he was the one who took me in afterwards, and he took care of me for about a week in Olympia, Washington, while I was in recovery. And he just did a masterful job of kind of like helping me go at my own pace and such. So then one of the things that I try to do when I have a client or a friend who's going through surgery is I try to remember to get in contact with them somewhere in the 24-hour window before they go into surgery to say something like what Peter said to me, you know, something to them of the effect of like, you know, I think you really, you really got this. You, you've done what you needed to do with this and it's going to work out. And um, I don't always, I don't always pull that off, but it's something that I intend to do. And I wanted to tell you that here. And it's good to help our people in these kinds of things. Like if you have the opportunity to be one of the people who helps, it, 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 it's good. It's good for a lot of different reasons. Okay. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Eddie. Been grateful ever since.